Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name, as Mike said, is Michelle McKeska. I'm the college pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. Um, and this past week, I had a very interesting experience. Uh, on Thursday, I actually watched one of my friend's kids from about 7 a.m. till 5.30. So I got just a taste <laughs> of, you, of you moms. Uh, I'm not a mom yet, but I, I definitely got a taste this past Thursday. And one thing that I learned, which I was not expecting to learn, uh, was the next morning I woke up and I had some serious, like, back pain. And I was like, okay. I know I'm not that old to where, like, you get injuries in your sleep and you wake up and you're like, oh, man, I'm kind of sore. So I was like, okay, what, what happened? What did I do? And I found out that you moms have incredible strength in your back that you've built up for, like, five years of holding children and arm muscles and biceps you guys are strong women. Um, and I had not built up that strength. So the entire day of, and I wasn't really lifting him a lot, but every time that I did, it was a little strain and pull in my back muscles. I was not prepared. Um, but anyway, it, we had a lot of fun. You know, I'm not known as the kid person in my group of friends. So I knew whenever they, you know, I'm laughing because you know. Um, and so I'm not, you know, when she called, and asked me to help watch her kid, I knew that I was probably the last person on the list. This had a, a ring of desperation to it, so we had a lot of fun. Um, but as you all know, I don't know if any of you all have watched any of the Olympics, seen the opening ceremonies. Do we have any Olympic fans in here? Yeah! Awesome! My husband and I love it. Like, if we are home, the TV is turned on to Channel 12, and we are watching whatever is on, we don't care. Um, and I got to watch the tail end of the opening ceremonies. I heard there was a bond moment with the queen. I, I missed that part. Um, but towards the end, you just had all of these athletes from all these different nations who are coming around and together under one roof. Um, and it's just a really moving experience. And I was trying to analyze why I get so moved uh, during the Olympic time of year. And I think it's because uh, it points to something bigger. Uh, it points towards what we would say is the hope of the gospel. All nations coming under one roof, united in peace and harmony. Um, but if we look to that for the Olympics, we're going to be disappointed, right? Because in the end, it's a sports competition. I mean, let's be real. We're, we're promoting peace and harmony, but also national pride. I mean, we're like, go USA. We want us to get the most you know, gold medals so that we can remain the superpower. I don't know. I don't really know what is achieved. But... Um, and so if we, we look to maybe the world's kind of solution for, for peace and unity and harmony, we're going to be disappointed outside of the gospel. And I think this is what Acts has been pointing us towards. And we're going to see that more after uh, the chapter that we're getting to today. If you all open up your Bibles to chapter 12, that's where we're going to be uh, in the book of Acts. Um, and what we're going to see is that after this chapter... Luke is, in a sense, going to kind of close the curtain on the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is still active and doing things, but the focus is going to be outward. The focus is going to be towards the nations, towards the Gentiles, uh, and we're really going to see that in the next few weeks. Um, and so this is Luke's kind of summing up and closing up of this chapter, uh, halfway through the book of Acts. Um, and so he is going to do two things for us. The first is he is going to kind of stack up and compare the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. Um, and he's going to do this very artistically. 
throughout this chapter, and he's going to see how they're going to stack up. So if you'll read with me, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, so there has been a continual shift in the way that Christianity, that the Christian movement has been viewed by the people. And we saw this turning really with the stoning of Stephen. And ever since then, persecution has steadily increased in Jerusalem uh, in regards to the church. And this is going to be one of the reasons why Luke uh, is going to point us towards the nations, why the church has moved outward. Um, And so the Jews are no longer friendly towards the Christian movement. Um, And we see here that we're introduced to a new character, a new character in these first five verses, uh, the King Herod. Now, that name should ring a bell to you to the point where we're like, oh, we've seen Herod before. We've seen him in the Gospels. Okay, let's back up and do a little bit of a history lesson. This King Herod's full name is Herod Julius Agrippa I. That'll be a quiz later. I'm just kidding. Um, And he is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that we saw in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. He is the paranoid king who, when he got the whiff from the wise men about a possible king being born, he decides, let's kill all the kids from two under. That was his solution to that problem. There's not going to be another king possibly rising. Um, He was probably one of the more brutal uh, kings that Jerusalem had had. He killed his own wife and sons and was super paranoid about someone taking over the throne. Uh, And on the eve of his death, he decided to ensure that there would be mourning, to ensure that there would be people who were mourning for his death. He arranged to have many distinguished Jews come to Jericho, and when he died, arranged for his family to kill them. So a mass murder would ensure that there would be mourning for his death. So really classy guy. Um, (laughs) We're, you know... Uh, not uh, surprisingly not very popular with the Jewish people Um, the Jews considered the Herod kind of line, royal line to just kind of be Roman lapdogs they were just pawns that the Romans had put in place um, and they were half breeds, they converted to Judaism were not Jews by birth and so they they were always questioning their faithfulness to the Jewish faith Um, and so now we see Herod his grandson, is continuing on in his grandfather's legacy of oppressing the people uh, of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. Um, And so Herod has decided uh, to kill one of the church leaders. So we've seen earlier that oppression has started with the chief priests, with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, but now it has escalated. Um, It has gotten the attention of the king. And so he decides, okay, I'm going to squash this movement, and I'm going to start targeting the leaders. So he grabs James, um, who's a lower-level leader, but then he sees that it's a popular decision. So he goes for the big fish. He goes for Peter uh, and puts him in prison. Now, um, something that I should point out to you, again, is the manner in which James is killed. 
uh, Luke makes mention that he is killed with the sword. If you remember back to Stephen's execution, it was by stoning. Uh, this is a particularly Jewish form of execution. If you remember the gospel story of the woman caught in adultery, she's brought before Jesus to be stoned to death. Jesus himself has to flee uh, from being stoned several times in the gospel stories. So when Herod uses the sword uh, to kill James, this Roman method of execution, this would send a very clear message to any first century Jew that this person, that James, is seen as an enemy of Rome. That the Christian movement is a political threat. It is um, a political threat to the governing powers of the day. Uh, because this group here, these Christians, are saying that a dead Jewish rebel is alive and is the true king of the Jews. And you know who's not going to like that message very much? Kings. They don't like hearing that somebody else is actually the Messiah, is actually the king. Um, so Luke here is telling us that the kingdom of God threatens the power structures of the kingdom of man. And that ultimately, we as Christians answer to someone else. And that all the rulers and authorities answer to him as well. Um, that the God of the universe is the one in charge through his king, Jesus. And opposing his kingdom usually doesn't turn out well. It usually doesn't turn out well. And we're going to see that at the end of this chapter. Okay. So understandably, King Herod, he's, he has a very difficult task put before him. He has to please two different sets of people um, who are usually at odds with each other, the Jews and the Roman authorities. Um, and so Rome would do this whenever they conquered a, a nation. They would put the reigning aristocracy in charge and say, okay, you keep these people in check because you understand their customs better than we do and you just make sure that they don't rebel, um, which automatically puts them at odds with their people. Uh, because they view them as traitors. Um, and so Herod is trying to keep these two sets of people happy, and it seems that he found a way. And that was, let's kill the group that both people don't like, the Christians. Um, and so he, he seems to have, this has solved all of his problems, and he's found that this is a good political move. As we see in verse 3, it says that it pleased the Jews to do so by targeting the church. So this is how the leader, Peter, finds himself in jail. Um, and if you'll read verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Once again, we see a comparison regarding the two kingdoms, but in this instance, it's how one responds to opposition. So Herod, when he's being opposed, or, you know, not violently, but when someone else is proclaiming there's another king... His response is, I will kill you. You're done. This is it. However, when the church faces opposition, they approach it a bit differently. One can easily look uh, down history at empires and tyrants alike, and their most potent weapon against rebellion, against opposition, is violence and death. Um, and it has traditionally worked. The Romans themselves created the cross, this uh, symbol of if you rebel against us, this is where you go. This is where we will put you. 
so you do not oppose us. They use the fear of death and the threat of violence to keep rebellion in check. This, as we know, was used climactically against Jesus when they hung him on the cross. But here's the thing. We know that Jesus is alive again. His resurrection has emptied the world of this particular power. Um, It has freed all of those who follow Jesus from the fear of death. And of people who are not afraid to die stand as the largest threat against these empires because their most powerful weapon has just been rendered useless. It's, uh, okay, kill me. I don't care. I know that in the end I will be resurrected in a new heaven and a new earth, so you don't really have any power over me anymore. Um, so the resurrection of Jesus has literally changed the game. It's changed the game, and the tyrants now find themselves on the losing side. So how then do the people of God respond to opposition? As verse 5 very simply puts it, they pray. There is action that they take, but it is not violent resistance. It is prayer. The people of God do not respond with violence, but they follow their Lord in suffering service. If you'll flip over to Mark chapter 10, we will see that Jesus commands us to act in this very way. Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 35, and we'll end in 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's kind of a bold statement, I'm just saying. Do whatever we want. <laughs> these, are, these are bold guys. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The James that we see in this story is the one who has just been killed by the sword. It seems that Jesus, not surprisingly, was correct. He knew that the path that his disciples would follow would most likely lead in their death. And what the disciples didn't understand then is that Jesus coming into his glory would be the moment when he hung on a cross. 
and that those to his right and to his left were the criminals next to him. That in order to defeat evil, he let them do their worst to him. And that the path to glory was in fact the path of suffering, of giving your life. And that the method of power in the world is the exact opposite of how we use power in the kingdom of God. To lead means to serve. To live means to die. Now Peter is put in prison, and the reason that his execution has not been carried out immediately is due to the Passover. We see this with Jesus himself. Um, when the chief priests are trying to arrest him, they're trying to get around the fact that Passover is coming soon. Um, because this is a, a festival time for the Jewish people when they are celebrating um, and looking back to the Exodus, looking back to their slavery in Egypt. This is a time when they celebrate God's saving power. And now, because of the resurrection of Jesus, the Passover means something even more significant to the church, the ultimate uh, rescuing and redeeming, that we've not just been freed from Egypt, we've been freed from the powers of sin, death, and evil itself. And it is with this imagery in mind that Luke wants us to view Peter's story. We see in this text echoes of the Exodus, when God defeated the powers of the day and delivered his people from bondage. And it is with this background in mind that Luke wants us to read the story of Peter's own deliverance. So if you'll read, we'll go from 6 to verse 19. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And an angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and spent time there. Okay, there are so many things that strike me about this story. Um, but 
the main thing that does is, uh, for lack of a better word, how down-to-earth this story is. Um, and as we have seen many times, Luke is a masterful storyteller, and we have a prime example of it here. So Peter is chained to two guards, and there are two other guards standing at the door. You get the feeling that Herod remembers their last prison escape in chapter 5, and maybe is afraid that prison bars don't seem to be able to hold these guys. Um, so he has four different sets of guards that take different shifts and are watching Peter. Um, now, the one thing that I want to note about this story is that this is the evening before Peter's death. Okay, he's going to have a trial. It's not going to be a fair trial. And then he's going to be executed. But the night before, he is sound asleep. He, like, lights are off. To the point that when the angel comes in, making its grand entrance and, like, blazing light in the cell, he's still out. And he has to hit him and say, hey, wake up. I'm here. I'm here to save you. <laughs> and he's so dead asleep. This is a person who does not have a fear of death. This is a person who believes wholeheartedly in the resurrection. Because he is unfazed by his prominent death that's coming. Okay, so he's still sleepy. He's still kind of stumbling around, even though the angel has woken him up, to the point that he thinks this is a vision, and I'm not really walking out of here. And it doesn't hit him until he's outside. He's like, oh, the bars are behind me. I'm, I'm free. <laughs> Exciting. And so he walks over, uh, and he knows the place where he can go, uh, to Mary's house, the mother of John Mark, who we're going to see uh, throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Um, this obviously was maybe a home base for the early believers where there, he knew there would be some people gathering to pray. Um, and she pro obviously was a woman of means since many could gather in her house and pray. Um, and then we have this next scene, which I think is one of the more comical scenes in the New Testament, where we have the servant girl, Rhoda, who is the comic relief in our story, who comes to the gate and... It, sees Peter, is so overjoyed that Peter's there, she goes, runs back and tells the people, hey, guess what? Peter's released. Except she forgets to open the gate for Peter. And she, in her excitement, leaves him standing out in the cold. Um, and ironically, the angel should have stuck around and maybe opened that one last gate because <laughs> obviously he needed to get through in another way. Um, and so, once again, Luke has um, artfully given us a bit of humor uh, in the midst of kind of a dark and uh, tumultuous story. So we have, then again, another scene that we come upon is the church, who is praying, praying for Peter. And when the servant girl comes and says, hey, guess what, Peter's here, they say, you're mad. What? It's not like they've just been praying for Peter at this very moment, but they don't believe the servant girl that Peter has actually been released. And I can't help but be comforted by this little story that we have of a church who maybe is faithfully praying, but is still perhaps plagued by doubt and despair. Maybe have been overcome and feel overwhelmed by the persecution that is coming upon them. Um, still faithfully praying to God for deliverance, but maybe not expecting it. Um, and I am thankful to Luke for giving us this one picture of the church, maybe not at their best um, who are still trying to work out what it means to faithfully follow Jesus and not getting it right all the time. 
Um, and finally, in the story, we see Herod. Um, again, we can't help but draw a comparison between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, um, where Herod is defeated and Peter is vindicated. He tried to do his worst to Peter and failed. And once again, we see that grace and prayer defeats abusive power of the tyrants. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that as Christians we will never experience hardship. We only have to look above to the first five verses to see that. Um, I, I think it would be severely cold and callous to say that nobody was praying for James and that's why he was not saved. I think there was earnest prayer for both. But James was killed by the sword and Peter was freed. Um, and so the path of following Jesus we see is full of risks and is usually met with suffering, but we believe and we hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, we believe that new life has begun and that the powers at large, the power of Herod, they have a limited time. They don't have much longer to reign and to rule. And finally, in verse 20 through 25, Luke is going to wrap up for us um, Herod's end, Herod's demise. Uh, and once again, we're going to see that Luke is going to show us what happens to people who oppose God's movement. So if you'll read in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give the glory, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Again, we have the comparison of Herod's demise and the success of the church. Um, we have other uh, people who have documented the story of Herod's end, um, and it, they're strikingly similar. It seems that Herod, for some reason, was angry with the countries of Tyre and Sidon. We, we don't know why, um, but we do know that they were dependent on Jerusalem for their grain. And so what seems to be happening in this story is that they're trying to appease the king, they're trying to make him happy, in a sense, so that he will give them grain. Uh, otherwise, they won't survive without it. And by doing this, they start chanting that his voice is of God and not of man. Um, this was a common conception amongst kings that they had, uh, that they were given at least some type of divine grace. And so I think they're trying to appeal to his ego here. Um, and he doesn't correct them. He doesn't correct what they say. Um, and he invokes God's wrath upon him. Now, very interestingly here, God's judgment upon Herod is also an affirmation and a vindication of who the true king is. Herod, who is chalked up to being some divine voice, comes to an end. The true king is Jesus, who is divine, who is God's son. That is the true king of the Jews. And the evidence for that is in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
Jesus, and his people are vindicated. And in the end, Luke closes the chapter with the continuing movement of the gospel out to the nations. This is what the primary focus is going to be in Acts from here on out. And he also introduces uh, some new key players. This is what Luke likes to do, is he'll just briefly mention their names, um, and they're probably going to be the primary actors in the next few chapters. Uh, and in this instance, these are going to be the primary missionaries to the Gentiles. So what we see in chapter 12, again, is kind of the, the closing of the curtain of the Jerusalem church. We don't really hear from the 12 disciples again. Um, they, they'll come up a little bit. Um, but what we have here in chapter 12 is a smaller version of the same story that Luke loves to tell over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. Um, and it is that the church is going forward, and despite opposition, God remains sovereign. Jesus remains king. Uh, very similar to the message of Revelation, that even though it looks like the church is being pummeled by the reigning powers of the day, God will be victorious. His people will be victorious. Um, and we see, we've seen from this point on, opposition from the chief priests, from the Pharisees, and now from the king of the Jews himself. And every time they've tried to squash this movement, they have failed. And, I mean, Saul, their primary persecutor of the Jews, has converted. Has converted to Christianity. And is now the primary missionary to the Gentiles. Herod, we've just read his story, tried to stop the Christians and gets a mysterious illness and dies. When the church is faced with real tragedy and disaster, God continually shows himself to be sovereign despite of it. And Jesus is continually vindicated as the world's true king, and his purposes continually are implemented through his followers. And that should be encouraging to you and I. Um, because I know that we can get we can get beat down by things that are going on in our lives. And it's very easy to focus on that um, and forget that despite that, God is sovereign. Despite that, God reigns. And I want to encourage you um, as we look through Acts that that's going to continue to be the message that we, that we see here. That Jesus is King. And if you'll flip over to Isaiah 55... Starting in verse 10, I want to read for you a couple of verses from there. In verse 10 it states, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God is always at work. Always. Sometimes quietly, sometimes, as we see in Acts, dramatically, but always effectively. It is always at work, and it will accomplish purpose. For as the grass 
withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains. Remains. And Gamaliel's words, if you remember, um, he said, let's leave these Christians alone because if it is from God, then no matter what we do, we're, we're not going to be able to stop it. And it seems those words have become prophetic. That no matter what the world has tried to do to oppose it, God remains victorious. And his kingdom <coughs> continues to spread. And I always say that I can sum up the book of Revelation in two words, which is, God wins. <laughs> God wins. Uh, no matter what uh, the powers that be try to do, God wins. He remains victorious. And we can be comforted and encouraged by that fact as we faithfully carry out his mission in a world that seems too dark to comfort. Let's pray. God, help us to remember that you are sovereign, that you reign and rule, and that this is not a guarantee of our safety or our comfort, but that it ensures that your purposes for the world will be carried out and accomplished, that justice will rule the day, that all wrongs will be righted, the poor will be fed, that we will live in a world that doesn't remember cancer, that doesn't remember murder. Our hope is in you, and because it is in you, we know that we do not hope in vain. We love you, God. It's in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen.